0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Philip D. Zelikow led the congressionally chartered inquiry into the terrorist attacks on
1: 9-11. Zelikow joins Washington Post Live to discuss how he's laying the groundwork for a national commission to investigate the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen. Good morning and thank you for joining us here at Washington Post Live. I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a columnist at the Post and deputy editor of the editorial page. And our guest today is Philip Zellico. Mr. Zellico is currently a professor of history at the University of Virginia, but he previously served as the executive director of the 9-11 Commission and right now he is working on he is leading an effort called the COVID Commission Planning Group. So thank you Mr. Zellico. Thank,
0: thank, thank you, you for being here this morning. Um
1: could could you talk a little bit about what this planning group is doing? It is not in and of itself a commission. It is trying to lay the groundwork for one. So How did you organize this, who is on it, and what have you been doing so far?
0: Sure, Um, uh, just be clear, you're absolutely right. There is no such thing as a national COVID commission. There is a large effort to try to plan one. The effort was not my idea. Um, I was approached uh, late last year by a group of major foundations, uh, um, representing uh, some diverse points of view. These foundation leaders thought it was obvious that after this monumental crisis, the largest perhaps to hit the United States since 1945, that there would be some uh, equally massive stock taking to deeply understand what happened and why and propose changes to help arm us better against such emergencies in the future. So these foundations asked me so, how how would one go about organizing such a commission? and I gave them some ideas. And they add, and, and what became clear right away is that this would perhaps be the largest crisis commission in American history. This is a sprawling crisis. It's uh, tackling an understanding of this crisis is actually a harder problem than the 9-11 Commission was. And therefore, sort of, once they uh, realized that, they said, well, obviously an enterprise on this scale that would be working around the country and even internationally needs to be planned, so they asked me to lead a group to plan such a commission, plan how it would stand up. I then uh, gathered uh, dozens of leading experts from around the country and we began uh, consulting people who had experienced the crisis both in the United States but also overseas and have now conducted uh, listening sessions with hundreds of people. Um, all sorts of people, leaders of nurses association, victims' families groups, uh, public health experts, epidemiologists, microbiologists, uh, former officials, all to scout the landscape of the crisis and develop a picture of how a commission might go about its work, draft dozens of launch work plans with the help of a number of experts, including many at the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins, and out of this national group prepare so that if a commission is created, it can get off to a quick start with a clear vision of what work needs to be done in order to provide results um, in time to take action while people are still seized with the need to make sure something like this never happens again. Uh, The country has not done very well with this crisis. Moving now towards 1 million excess deaths in the United States. Um, Worldwide, we're probably, uh, despite what you might see in the official data, probably more than 10 million excess deaths and could easily match that number with another 10 million by this time next year. So we're dealing with a global war of an alien invasion of a new microorganism. Our defenses against this invasion collapsed immediately. And every community in America has been fighting the invader as best it can. And we need to understand the choices people made and how we can equip this country better to stand up against another major emergency. And I think the 21st century is giving us more and more crises of this kind.
1: But for a commission of this sort to happen, it is going to have to be chartered by Congress as the 9 no, 11 commission. Not right that you, you you would be able to set one up without a uh, congressional buy-in? Or ha- how would you go about that's setting right. one up?
0: There are three ways it can be done. Uh, Congress can pass an act creating such a commission. Um, our reading of the situation on Capitol Hill, and I've talked to members of Congress of both parties in both houses, um, my reading of the situation is that right now, that's unlikely. Right now, it's quite doubtful that Congress will create a COVID Commission. The bills uh, that would like to do that are not going anywhere at the moment, and uh, people in Congress are pessimistic. Um, there are reasons for that. Uh, the, most of the Republican caucus does not want to create a commission that will put a spotlight on President Trump's performance, and they fear Democrats just want to run a blame game against President Trump. Um, The Republicans, in turn, want to keep the conversation focused exclusively on China. Um, Democrats look at the experience in trying to create the January 6th Commission, and they're disheartened. They see a commission plan in which the commissioners would be selected by the four congressional leaders, and they think that that commission will end up mirroring the partisan disagreements rather than overcoming them. So the odds of a congressionally created commission right now are low. Uh, The president could create such a commission, um, but that's hard. Uh, Right now the White House is not interested in doing this. It wants to be focused 24/7 on combating the current crisis and doesn't want to appear to be looking back to investigate their predecessor. And they would have trouble with the Federal Advisory Committee Act uh, with its open records. Um, very difficult to conduct a massive investigation in which everything every witness tells you is immediately made public. So the third option is to create an independent commission, an independent commission, nonpartisan, privately sponsored, but working with the support of both the administration and congressional committees that can help facilitate its work.
1: So So, how do you get around, though, the fact that this this crisis, that this pandemic that the world has been living through for over a year now, has become at least in this country so politicized. Um, even if this is a bipartisan commission, how do you how do you lay the groundwork for the kind of trust uh, from the public that that you would need?
0: You mainly lay the groundwork by appointing a group of commissioners, I think, and selecting a staff in a way that is more nonpartisan than bipartisan. Rather than trying to compose it with a group of uh, p- people primarily chosen for their political coloration, you choose people who are primarily chosen because of their knowledge and their ability to represent all kinds of expertise, and there are a lot of really outstanding Americans who would, could contribute. First, and also remember we're dealing here with an enemy that doesn't have a political party. The microorganism doesn't know from Democrats and Republicans. And when you get into the details of how people made these choices, I think on a lot of the things we've been looking hard at, you can pretty quickly get past a lot of the partisan labeling and partisan uh, trench lines because you get into deep issues people face as they try to cope with this crisis, some of them deep institutional issues. We have a public health system in the United States that was designed in the first Cleveland administration that was then facing a 21st century pandemic uh, that has frankly overwhelmed our public health systems. Um, And almost every state and city has had to cope with this, setting up ad hoc ways of managing the crisis and often feeling overwhelmed. healthcare systems often overwhelmed. That's not a partisan issue. It's not a partisan issue as to whether or not you want your hospital to overwhelmed and collapse. Uh, it's not a partisan issue as to whether you want people to get sick and die. Um, so we think there is a basis. If you work through the problems and just reconstruct the choices people made to solve these problems, what was available to them? What information did they have? What tools were available to them to try to solve these problems? Yeah, there are differences in values that were important, but I think if people really understand the choices people faced, the information, the tools they had, it'll really drive a lot of action on how to make our country stronger in the future. That was our experience with the 9-11 Commission. Very partisan, lots of uh, clamor, lots of preconceived opinions about what had happened. But once the commission had done its work, it, it really reset public understanding of the crisis and ended up making America safer and stronger um, over the next 20 years. It's really an American success story that we can repeat in this case.
1: Well, you had mentioned there there is reluctance on the part of the White House to look back. Um, how important is it to look all the way back? and figure out what the source of this virus was. We had a report come out last week from our own intelligence community where they themselves were divided, uh, whether it was a transmission from animal to human or some kind of lab outbreak. And even as they were expressing their opinions, they were saying they had no confidence in their opinions. How important is it to figure this out? are you seeing in the evidence that is out to date? And how do you get around the fact that China is not, is not cooperating with, with these efforts?
0: Well, it's, an, it's just a huge issue, and you can't overlook it. You can't duck it. Um, if this is a war, you have to look at the causes of the war. And by the way, the Washington Post editorial board has run a series of editorials on this subject that have been excellent. Um, part of, I think, some very strong reporting on the crisis generally. But uh, here's the key thing to understand about the origins controversy and the approach that we think a commission should take is it's impossible to understand the controversy over origins without putting that in the context of all the efforts to prevent a pandemic. You see, no matter what theory one has about the origins of the pandemic, Whether you think the evidence is stronger for some kind of lab leak that produced by certain kinds of recombinant virus research, or whether you think it's stronger for natural zoonotic crossover, as the experts would put it. Whatever your view, actually, both those theories turn on programs that were designed to prevent a pandemic over the last 20 years. Most people don't realize that there have been controversies about all these programs, about their practicality, their cost-benefit, their safety, for the last 20 years. Um, All the controversies now about origins should be understood in the context of 20 years of debate over how best to prevent a pandemic in order to then work from on the origins issue, analyzing the best available evidence with the best possible scientific advice Using the national academies in the United States, working with international scientists, analyzing the evidence, allowing scope for articulation of alternative and dissenting views, but then to do that to look forward. To look forward, for instance, on how should we go about attempting to collect uh, zoonotic pathogens in the wild? Is that cost beneficial? Is it too dangerous? Second, how should we go about conducting extremely hazardous recombinant virus experiments in a situation where those experiments are also absolutely necessary for the development of vaccines. How do you set guidelines on this? By the way, the scientific community had big debates about this 10 years ago that are mostly unknown. Uh, The Post recently ran a story on some of this and, and efforts to develop ideas and guidelines fizzled. 10 years ago, that knowledge and wisdom needs to be brought forward because we're going to need those guidelines in the future, not just in the United States, but worldwide. And China will need them too uh, for its own private and public labs, as they know. Third, we need to look at biosafety standards to govern private and public labs worldwide, and we need better procedures for how to handle systematic outbreaks uh, like the kind we've just
1: experienced. But the Chinese government has not cooperated with the efforts that have taken place so far. Phase one and phase two, for instance, from the World Health Organization, uh, they have thrown up their own theories, which seem to be uh, more of a distraction than than theories. How do you get the kind of cooperation that you are really going to need from, from the Chinese government?
0: Well, I think, first of all, um... You might not get any more cooperation than we've gotten so far. So, you just, first of all, you have to just accept that possibility. Um, it's in actually a Chinese interest to get to the bottom of what happened here. If you read the intelligence community assessment that was published last week, the declassified version, they noted that the Chinese authorities appear, from the intelligence community's evidence, to have been as much surprised by the outbreak as the world was, which tells you something. So they want to get to the bottom of this too, but they are anxious that they not be blamed. All right. These pandemic prevention programs I'm describing and all the uh, collection of viruses and experiments on these viruses, these were not just Chinese programs. These were transnational research programs in which viruses were being collected in a number of countries, The experiments were going on in a number of countries. There are a lot of people, not just in China, who have a lot of understanding of these research programs. And there's a lot of evidence about this that can be that can be understood not just in China. And I think if one just approached China, uh, some approach through non-governmental scientific channels is likely to have the best payoff. But even if the Chinese don't cooperate further, because they don't want to feed a blame game, or they want to run their own blame game. That still means you have to have guidelines of how to go forward. You still need to analyze what are the possibilities, what do we know, and based on what we know, how do we develop guidelines to go forward on how to prevent the future pandemic? It's urgent out of this crisis that we at least have guidelines as to how to prevent another one.
1: One of the issues that has, um, that has, there are so many issues that have arisen in this crisis, but one of them is disparity. Uh, The fact that in our own country, this virus has hit especially hard in minority and low income communities that worldwide, as vaccines have been developed, uh, you have countries such as ours, where we have an excess supply of the vaccine. And countries in the world where they have basically none at all. So could you talk a little bit about the degree to which any kind of commission is going to have to, to look at these issues of, of equity and really sort of weaknesses in both our own national healthcare system and worldwide?
0: It's absolutely right, Karen. Um, and we've spent a lot of time looking at that. Um, we had, a, I remember, an especially moving conversation with Dr. Reed Tuxon who used to be the DC Public Health Director and is now one of the leaders of the Black Coalition Against COVID-19. And Dr. Tuxon uh, and a lot of other experts have described a phenomenon that has at least two huge dimensions. One is you've got communities that are medically underserved. Uh, people don't have easy access to health care. Uh, they tend to show up in emergency rooms, They're, they have uh, they have weak access to health care, they are public health deserts, but also they are alienated from the health care system and distrustful of it. If you look at the, per- the numbers on vaccine hesitancy, for example, uh, there are minority communities that have just as much vaccine hesitancy as communities in rural America. Both are alienated and distrustful of the healthcare system, which they feel is remote and governed by elites who don't understand or care about them. Um, so then the challenge is, how do you design a public health system that does a better job of helping people, reaching out to those communities and rebuilding that lost trust. There is some trust, by the way, that people usually have in their doctors, but they don't associate the public health system with the doctors who care for their loved ones.
1: So looking forward, um, as you have mentioned several times, this is probably, not the last time that, that we in the United States and, and people across the world are going to be facing a challenge, a health crisis like this. So with all the months of work that you have done looking into this, what keeps you awake at night? You know, wh- where do you most fear the next crisis is likely to come from?
0: I think that's a great question, Karen. The, and the honest answer is, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, here's what I have noticed though. I have noticed that the dominant kind of crises in the 21st century are of this surpassing transnational quality. We have We have a national security establishment that is mainly oriented to 20th century style threats. Yet if you think about 9-11, The global financial crisis, this global pandemic crisis, again and again, we're seeing transnational emergencies uh, that arise all over the world that present dire threats to our society. Now, what keeps me up is I fear that the country's basic systems for coping with large emergencies have been breaking down. Uh, The great contrast in this crisis that comes out again and again is the contrast between our amazing science, which is astonishing, and the capacity of humans to organize and apply that scientific knowledge to help each other in practice. It's the, it's the failure of the human institutions then that we need to understand to cope with these transnational crises. That's why in a way this crisis is an enormous opportunity for us to learn not just how to cope with another pandemic, but how to cope with surpassing national emergencies and develop more competence in our public institutions and how to make that competence um, systematic, uh, not just uh, heroic individuals who do well in this city or in that agency, but something in which the general quality of our institutions gets up to the level that we need in order to cope with emergencies like these.
1: So in the in the few minutes that we have left, I, I'd like to take you back to your previous work with the 9-11 Commission. We've got the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up. Uh, We are going to see, you know, over and over again stories in the media. As you look at this anniversary, what goes through your mind? Um, What do you think people should be reflecting on? As I mean, it, it comes at a moment when we are pulling out of Afghanistan, a war that we went into because of 9/11. How far has the country come, and what should people be reflecting on as they as they look at this anniversary?
0: Um, it's it's a great question, Karen. I'm a university teacher, and um, almost none of my students were even alive when 9/11 happened. It's kind of it's to them it's all received and transferred memory the way in uh, perhaps Pearl Harbor was for people of our generation. Um, And I think this was a bigger shock than Pearl Harbor, a bigger shock to the country in some ways, more visceral, closer to home, uh, more disproportionate. I think uh, there are so many obvious things one can say about memory and service. What I guess I would try to stress is first, is it's important to Keep a, put a trauma like this in perspective, um, and so that it, the trauma doesn't dominate your life. It becomes one of these dangers with which our society just copes in the modern world. And the nine eleven Commission, in a way, is a success story. Um, the government created a short-lived agency to understand what happened and why, and it worked. And there were reforms and an understanding of the crisis that made the country safer, and it did make the country safer. If you had told people in October of 2001, or September of 2001, that in the next 20 years, America will not suffer another major catastrophic terrorist attack from violent Islamist extremists, They would have regarded that as a success scenario at the very upper bound of a plausible scenario of a success. So amidst all these terribly depressing headlines of the last two weeks from Afghanistan and the pandemic, it's kind of useful to keep that in mind because that's a triumph of public service and public learning. And it also a triumph of being able to keep a trauma in perspective and move forward and learn from it. And I think that's what we can do now with this terrible pandemic crisis, too.
1: And, and how confident are you? And Sorry, how confident are you with the withdrawal of our forces from Afghanistan that in our own defenses, at, in our own intelligence against another sort of terrorist attack,
0: um, actually I'm pretty confident about that. I'm not as privy to the intelligence as I was a few years ago, but from what little I know I think the institutions are actually pretty strong. One of the institutions the 9-11 Commission helped create, the National Counterterrorism Center or NCTC, um, is, uh, is an outstanding institution, is very much on the job. Um, also uh, people are focused on Afghanistan, um, the Islamic State that carried out this attack at the airport last week, by the way, carried out that attack in a situation where we couldn't have our normal security precautions in place because of the conditions at the airport. Um, that, uh, that particular organization is a, de- is a deadly enemy of the Taliban. The Taliban will be first in line trying to kill its members, and every other neighboring country around Afghanistan regards the Islamic State as a deadly enemy. So if we want to fight the Islamic State, we'll have to get in line, because every single country in the region wants to fight them, and so does the Taliban. Uh, in fact, the first thing the Taliban did when they came into Kabul was to pull an Islamic State leader who was captive out of jail and shoot him. So there's that danger. If we're worried about Islamist extremists, in some ways, the more serious threats, and the ones where we are closer to being able to do something about them, are in places like Africa, Syria, and northern Iraq, or in the Arabian Peninsula. So it's it's useful to kind of keep a global perspective on these things. Um, And in that global perspective, actually our partners, like the Europeans, are very important. The Europeans are doing much more than we are to combat these dangers in the Mediterranean world or in Africa. And so, as we move forward, we need to learn lessons about our international partnerships, which actually have worked pretty well over the last 20 years.
1: Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. But I want to thank you so much, Mr. Zellico, for being with us and for sharing with us the very, very important work that that you and your colleagues on the the COVID Planning Commission are doing.
0: Thank you, Karen. And I appreciate the work The Washington Post has been doing to cover this crisis and write about it.
1: And again, we wanna also thank you for being with us today here at Washington Post Live. And we'd like to invite you as always to go to WashingtonPostLive.com to find out what other programs we have coming up. See you next time.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.